0: Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm starting a brand new series and it's called Caring for Your Clan. And of course you know that this month is family month. We do this once every year and we spend the whole month doing nothing but family. And I'll tell you why we do that. In God's world, there is nothing more important than the family. It was the very first thing that he created as far as mankind was concerned. Before there was a government, before there was even a law, before there was any kind of institutions, before there was even a place of worship, God created the family. Let me paint a picture for you. So, so God in Genesis 1-1, he creates the heavens and the earth. And we know a little bit about this universe he created. It's extraordinary. It's a a universe that expands 13.67 billion light years from one side to the other. With billions of stars and billions of galaxies and billions of solar systems. And then in one of these solar systems, our solar system, he built this planet. The third planet, little blue planet, third from the sun. And then, what he did on that planet was he started to renovate that planet, unlike the other planets that we know of anyway. And in this one, he put life in it, and he put rivers and streams and mountains and an atmosphere. And then he started to populate it with trees and with grass. And then he added the animals and the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And then, in the middle of this little planet, in the middle of the universe, he built a garden. And in this garden, in the middle of that garden, he went and took a little handful of dirt. And out of that dirt, he made man. For some of you women, that explains everything about your husband. That's all you really need to know (laughs) is to consider his origin. And, and, And he created man. And then the first thing he says to the man was this, that it is not good for man to be alone. And therefore he goes and takes his rib out and he fashions the woman for him. And he brings the woman to him. And he says to this couple, here's my plan for you. He launched the great scheme of of all time, which was the family. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The first command and pretty much the only one we've been able to keep. (laughs) And we are so nailing it. After all these years, there's 8 billion people on the planet. We filled the earth and we subdued it. We were fruitful and we multiplied. I always tell people that, that I think sex was God's way into tricking us into having kids. That's what I think. But nevertheless, this is what his plan was, his scheme. He wanted people. He wanted family. And, and I don't know how you imagine that moment. Here's how I imagine that moment. So, so Adam, you know, he, he brings the woman to him and he's sitting there looking at, at Eve he didn't know what to do with her. So he says to God, what do you want me to do? He says, well, go over and give her a hug. He says, Lord, what's a hug? So he explains to him what a hug is. And so Adam goes over and gives her a hug and comes back and says, that that, that was pretty good. he says, well, now go over and give her a kiss. He says, Lord, what's a kiss? And so he explains to him what a kiss is. And he goes over and then gives her a kiss and comes back one minute later. And he said, that that was pretty good, Lord. He said, well, you're going to like what comes next. He says, I want you to go back and I want you to make love to her. He says, Lord, what what does it mean to make love? So he explains it to him. So he heads over there. One minute later, he's back. He says, Lord, what's a headache? (laughs) True story, I believe. So so this title of the series is called Caring for Your Clan. And specifically today, what I want to talk about is this. Who is your clan? And uh, when we think of clans, I don't know what you think of when you think of a clan, but most of us conjure up the image of the Scottish Highlands. And the Scots actually they s- formed their their social structure in th- in clans is what they did. And you know something about that? They are groups of people, groups of families that have come together, and they are all related either by marriage or by by blood. And uh, they have this common bond to one another. And in the old days, they used to live together. They used to work together. They used to Fight together and they had names like you know McGregor and McCacker and MacArthur and McDermott you know all those those nice you know Scottish names and they're identified with those names and they don't go and, they don 't go and fight as clans anymore, but they do compete as clans every year they have the Highland games and they come together and you 've seen pictures where they 're throwing poles i don 't know why you want to throw a log, but that 's what they do and they do that and, they, and one of the big events for them is clan against clan and it 's the tug of war. And of course, I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures, and there they are, and they're, they're pulling, and you can tell that's all one clan. How can you tell? You can tell from the tartan. See, every clan has a tartan specific to them, and God help you if you wear another person's tartan. And so there they are. I mean, they are very, very proud of these clans, and they're very, very proud of those tartans. And uh, you know, the Brits are proud people. But when you have men that are willing to wear a skirt in public, that takes pride to a whole new level. And you know why they call them kilts, don't you? Because I kilt the last guy who called it a skirt. (laughs) That's why. And I think I'm at risk right there. And so when we think of, of, of clans, we often think of the Scottish. But in fact, here's the thing that's interesting. It's a biblical concept. It's actually all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you know the word clan in the original Hebrew language appears 224 times in the Old Testament? Now, many times they just translate it simply families, the plural of family, families. uh, But sometimes it's translated as clan. And you will be very familiar with one particular story that I want to just briefly tell you today. Because it identifies and really helps us understand what a clan was historically. So the story is the story of Gideon. Uh, J- Judges chapter 6, you remember him. He was in the bottom of the wine press. He was threshing wheat. He was down there because the Mennonites, I mean the, the Midianites, always get those two mixed up. Uh, they they had overrun the land and so he was hiding from them. And uh, God shows up and he says, Gideon, I want you to rise in this might of yours and you will defeat Israel as one man. And these are the words that come out of Gideon's mouth. He says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at his identity because clearly he had an inferiority complex. You probably already saw that. But on the other hand, he knew where he was and he knew who he was and he knew where he came from. And so I'm going to throw it up on the screen so we can see it visually. This is the identity of Gideon. We know that his nationality was Israel. He was a Jew. He was part of the nation of Israel. He said, how can I save Israel, my nation? My culture, my people, my ethnicity. And then he refers to his tribe. He says, my clan is the weakest in all Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. God had divided the nation of Israel into these 12 distinct tribes. And he refers to his clan being the weakest group, the weakest clan, the weakest group of families in the tribe of Manasseh. And if you do a little reading in the scripture there, you'll discover that he was from the clan of Abizar. And then, of course, he refers to where he is in his own particular family. And he says, I am the least in my father's house. And his father was Joash. And so that was his family. And so as we look at this, we begin to recognize that that there are clans and they're very, very much important to the whole nature of the biblical story that we've often forgotten or maybe we've neglected to see it at all. And here's what I'm here to tell you is that every single one of you has a clan. And so my question today is, who is your clan? And I know immediately some of you think, well, I don't have a clan. And the answer to that is yes, you do. And I'm going to explain how you figure it out. Now, you remember probably a few months ago, I introduced you to something called Dunbar's number. Robin Dunmore was a sociologist some years ago, and he came up with this idea that cognitively, we are only able to manage about 150 meaningful relationships. And so there it is, and he breaks it down, yeah, you know, we can recognize people by face, we might know people's names, but that number of 150 is sort of what we are intellectually and cognitively capable of maintaining in a social structure. And so that is probably the size of your clan, somewhere in that particular range. And if you want to know who is in your clan, all you have to do is look around the room at the next family wedding. Because the family wedding will be your clan. Those are the people who are your meaningful relationships. Who will be there? Well, there will be your immediate family. There will be your extended family. There will be your church friends. There will be your work friends. There will be your friend friends. There may be some neighbors there. There will always be that crazy uncle that you wish you didn't have to invite, but you have to, right? How many have that uncle? How many of you are that uncle, right? Oh, a couple of hands going up in the room, because you know that guy. He gets drunk and throws up in the dance floor. So you, know, you, know, you don't want to invite him, but he's going to show up. You don't do that, do you? No, thank you. <laughs> he did put up his hand as the crazy uncle, though. And so it's really interesting. You look around. These are, these are people's clans. And these are the people. Why are they at that way? Because those are the people, whether they're related to you or not, they are the people that are important to you. And one of the privileges I get as a pastor, because I've done dozens of weddings, is I get to go to other people's weddings and I can look around the room and I can discover who their clan is. Now, even though I've done dozens of weddings, it's nothing like Pastor Aubrey. Aubrey's actually done hundreds of weddings, and he's been counting. He's got the record. He's been to so many weddings, you wouldn't hardly believe it. And uh, my mother calls him Marrying Sam. And most of you don't remember that because you're not old enough, but that's from Little Abner, Cap Little Abner. And there was Marrying Sam. Here's a picture of it. And he was the one who married everybody. They called him Marrying Sam because he did all the weddings in Dogpatch. And I looked at that picture, and I thought, there are some distinct similarities to Pastor Aubrey. <laughs> now, Aubrey's a lot uh, taller, but I think we should get him the hat. What do you think? <laughs> Aubrey gives things up. He's always happy with, with free swag. And so, and so here's what happens. You, you go to these weddings And it's fascinating to discover who's in people's clans. Now, Kathy and I went to this one wedding, and we got invited to sit at the parents of the groom table. So as we were walking towards the the table, I'm wondering to myself, who are the two other couples going to be joining us at the parent of the groom? Are you ready for this? It was his accountant and his lawyer. And I thought, okay, that says everything about this guy, everything I need to know about what he values in life. And because I do weddings, I see so many interesting things. I once did a wedding of two lawyers, and they wanted to rewrite their vows. They did not want to say, I do. Instead, they wanted to say, I accept the terms and the conditions of this contract. (laughs) And then there was the two nuclear scientists, and uh, the bride, I mean, she was radiant, but even the groom was positively glowing. (laughs) And then, of course, I did, I, I don't know, I did the, the uh, two florists. That was a little different, though, because that was an arranged wedding. <laughs> you know, I can abuse myself. I don't need your help. <laughs> so, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of drill down on this idea of who is your clan. I'm going to show you a verse that's really going to help us understand this and really help us understand what's important about our clan. And so we are in, going to be in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, And here's the story, Uh, most of you will remember it, the children of Israel got taken away captive uh, to Babylon for 70 years. And after 70 years, they finally start trickling back, coming back into the city of Jerusalem. They were under the leadership of this man named Nehemiah, a man with great vision. And Jerusalem was in big trouble. The gates were burned with fire. The walls had tumbled down. It was just a bunch of rubble. But what he did was he gathered this group of people together. And he knew how to stir them. And he knew how to inspire them. And they started to work. And they got their minds together to rebuild this city. And they got the wall up to half its height. Now, here is the little problem in the midst of this, is if you're away from your home for 70 years, somebody else is probably going to move into it. And there was a group of people living in that vicinity, and they didn't want those Jews back. And they're named in Scripture. They were Sanballat and Tobiah, and they were the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. And there was this group of people, every single one of them. The Scripture says they all conspired together to attack the Jews and to end this restoration of the city. So now Nehemiah has a problem because the people are afraid, they're nervous, they're discouraged, they're worn out, and now they're under attack. So he has to figure out what to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the story of his strategy. There's a couple of things I don't want you to miss. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 13. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall and at the openings, and I set the people according to their families. Take a wild stab at it. What word do you think that word is? Families. Clans. Clans. It's the word clans. Same word that we saw in the story of Gideon. He says, I set them according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I rose and I said to the nobles, to the leaders and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And It happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plan to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Now here's my question for you. Why did he set them on the wall according to their clans? Because he wanted them to fight for their families. He knew that people will fight for their families more than anyone else in this world. Isn't that true? I mean, people will fight for their nation. People will fight for their freedom. But when it comes, don't mess with my family. When it comes to my family, I will fight to the death. If I see my, my uncle and my aunt and my grandmother and my grandfather, if I see my sons and my daughters there, I will fight to the death. Nehemiah knew this. And he put them together on the wall in a careful orchestration that they were in proximity of their family, knowing that they would fight for their family. And then he gives them this speech, this little tiny speech. It's like two lines long, but it inspired them, and they knew I need to fight for my family. The battle rages today, and I'm going to encourage you to fight for your family in just a moment. But when I read this story, there's a picture that comes to my mind, and you know what it is? The movie Braveheart. How many remember the movie Braveheart? How many of you have seen it? The movie Braveheart is, is, is a great movie. Here's the poster from it. Everybody thought the mullet came from the 90s. It turns out it came from the 1290s, <laughs> according to this movie. And of course, it's this great Mel Brooks movie, and as I said, many of you have seen it. And here's the a, here's a storyline in brief. It's the end of the uh, 13th century, and uh, Scotland has been invaded by the English under the Edward the Longshanks, and uh, that part of the story is true. And uh, they weren't very happy about it. They're still not very happy about it, even to this day, by the way. Uh, But anyway, what happened was the king went in and he started giving certain privileges to the English noblemen. And one other thing he did, which was very much true, was he started giving lands, Scottish lands, to English noblemen, which the Scots didn't like. But then there's another part of this story in the movie that probably is not historically accurate, but for the sake of the movie, I'm going to tell you what it was. And it was he declared uh, prima nocta. And unless you know Latin, here's what it means. It means that the English noblemen were allowed on a Scottish woman's wedding night to take her, and to violate her. If there was ever an egregious attack on the family, that that alone has got to be it. And so if you know the story, William Wallace, Braveheart, William Wallace, uh, his own wife gets caught up in this and ends up being murdered in the process, a longer story. So now he's got a murdered wife, and he is a man on a mission. And you know, that he's not going to stop at anything. And we always look at this story and we think that he was fighting for Scotland or we think he was fighting for his freedom. But don't miss the fact that he was fighting for his family and for the families. And so in the movie... There's this great scene, the, the, the most iconic scene of them all. And the clans of Scotland have all uh, congregated. And they're standing in, across the valley from the English. And it is really an impossible fight. They are outnumbered. And so we've got William Wallace and he's challenging them. And he says, will you fight? And they said, no, we will run and we will live. And then he gives this famous speech that probably many of you have heard. And he says, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And then many years from now, dying on your bed, would you be willing to trade all those days from this day to that for one chance For just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies, you may take our lives, but you will never take our freedom. And at that, the crowd erupted in Scotland forever. And they ran into battle with their picks and their axes and their sticks. And what he did was he appealed to their sense That though they were afraid and though they didn't want to die that day, was it a fight worth engaging? And I would ask you the same question. Because we're in a battle. We're in a battle for the family. There is a war against the family. And all you have to do is open your eyes and look at what is happening, particularly with the next generation. The young people are under siege. The young people are being barred by social media and by news media and by pop culture and by modern music and by the internet and TV and movies and the list goes on and on. And every single one of those aspects that they face every single day of their lives undermines the very concept of the family. It dishonors marriage. It dishonors fidelity. It dishonors uh, sexual morality. It dishonors family values. And they're being faced with it. And if you let your kids, if you let the next generation fend for themselves, they will become victims in this war. And we have to Fight for them. They can't journey this on their own. We're going to have to fight with them. We're going to have to talk with them. We're going to have to communicate with them. We're going to have to take those values that we have of our faith and impart them and inculcate them into them because without that, they don't stand a chance. And all you have to do is look at the factors around marriage and around family. And I'll just show you one. This is just one of many. I'm going to throw you up this graph on the screen. And this is the birth rate. Of children born out of wedlock in North America. And in 1940, so a couple of to three generations ago, it was very, very low, less than 5% of children were born outside of wedlock. Now, if you look at it today, we look the average in North America, the average is 40% of all children are born out of wedlock in North America today. Can you, can you believe that? Isn't that a staggering and a stunning number to think of? 40% of the children coming into the world without parents united in marriage. And the worst demographic in that is the, in the U.S., the African American, that number is 72%. It's a horrifying number. And before we get too you know, self-righteous about that, Canada's got its own big, big challenges. And the worst demographic in all of Canada, you know where it is? It's Quebec. Quebec has the worst on this. 63% of all children born today in Quebec are born out of wedlock. You say, what is this? What's going on? And I'll tell you why it's so extraordinary, because in 1940, they had the lowest rate of that, 2%. There was was so few in Quebec uh, in 1940 that you wonder what happened. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of what happened. You know, most of you know that Quebec was at one time a Roman Catholic uh, province. Everybody went to church. The churches are everywhere. Even if you go today, you'll see, you'll see these buildings everywhere all over the cities throughout Quebec. But then something happened in the 60s and the 70s. Most of you are familiar with your Canadian history. It was called the Quiet Revolution. And the governments of the day, very intentionally and very purposely, decided they were going to secularize Quebec. And they were going to break apart the influence of the Catholic church, what they thought was too extreme. And they were going to break its hold and its stronghold. And they were very successful in doing that. And today in Quebec, those church buildings are still there, by the way. You know what they are? their nightclubs and their restaurants and their condominiums there's no church services going on in there and only one percent of all quebecers are evangelical christians today bible believing christians today it is the lowest percentage in the entire western world what happened they got decoupled from their faith and the consequence to the family has been extraordinary now just to give you one more little piece about that where have we landed where we landed in the 21st century, and many of you follow the news, and we know we now have Bill 21. And Bill 21 prohibits people who work in a public workplace within government, organizations, schools, etc., hospitals, etc., to wear any religious attire whatsoever on their bodies. So that means if you're Jewish, you can't wear a kippah. If you're a Muslim, you can't wear a niqab. If you're a Sikh, you cannot wear a turban. If you're a Christian, you cannot wear a cross or a crucifix. And you've been following the news... They're losing their jobs over it. They're being discriminated against. It's gone all the way to the Quebec Supreme Court, and they have upheld this law. Why? Because the widespread sentiment within Quebec is they want to be free from religion. And so there's very few that are standing up and resisting that. But here's the point I'm making. You see, faith and family are connected. Once you, once you decouple that, once you remove people's faith, their, their family life is probably in great jeopardy after that. And all we have to do is look at the world as the family goes. So goes the nation, right? Most of you know that. So I want to give you a little history lesson here on the family. One that most people would be vaguely familiar with, but maybe not specifically. So I'm going to give you the sort of uh, history of the family as it's progressed throughout the course of time. Originally, uh, pretty much everywhere, including in the Bible, people lived in extended families, pretty much throughout all of history, most of history. And people lived in these families where there would be the grandma and the grandpa and the uncle and the aunt and the cousins, and you'd all kind of live together. And you wouldn't necessarily all live in one house, but you would live in the same proximity. You'd live all very close together, and you would live together, you'd work together, you would eat together. And we could call that, at some level, a clan and we have this picture because we're so indoctrinated in the idea of a nuclear family that we think that that's the only way it should be and we we look at some of these stories and we imagine it with a 20th century mentality but in fact if you take the story of Abraham and Sarah probably well, you've heard it many many times in church so you imagine this poor Abraham and Sarah they're childless They're sitting in that empty home alone at 75, at 85, at 95, at 99, till they finally had their baby at 100. Well, they did have that, you know, nephew Lot, but he moved out and went to Sodom, which is true. But here's what most people don't know. I'm going to tell you this story. So in Genesis chapter 14, we've got Lot living off in Sodom, like I just said. And there was a little skirmish, a little battle that took place between these city kings. These kings had cities. And so each one of the city, like the city of Sodom and other cities, they had these, these kings that ruled over them. And four of these city kings went to battle against five of these other city kings and they defeated them. And one of the kings and cities that got defeated was the city of Sodom. And they took, they captured Lot, Abraham's nephew. Now when Abraham heard about this, he was going to fight for his family. <laughs> and so here's what it says. You can go look it up because you might not believe it. It's Genesis fourteen fourteen, And it says, and Abraham took 318 trained men who had all been born in his house and pursued the four kings. Did you catch that? 318 grown, trained men. Every last one of these men had been born in his house. Abraham and Sarah weren't having children. But somebody was, right? Somebody within his household. He had this enormous household. We don't know how many people were in it, but we know there were 318 children that had grown up into be men. And of course, there'll be, other, there'll be women there and other people. Who knows how big Abraham's house was? So we have no idea the fact that he didn't have a child of his own was one thing, but he definitely had a clan and a very, very large clan. Now, here's the thing about the extended family that was so uh, powerful was that it was very resilient and it was very stable. And because there were so many people around, if something happened, if somebody got sick, if somebody died, there was a buffer there and there was other people to take up the slack. And so an extended family rarely broke down completely. I was telling this story last night and at the end of the message, a, a man in our church came up to me and he, he grew up in the Caribbean. And he said, you know, Pastor Mark, when I was six years old, my mother died and I barely noticed because he said I had aunts living in the house with us and they raised me as their son and I never missed having a mother and they bossed me around and disciplined me just like any other mother. And he doesn't care any wound from that today because he grew up in an extended family where there were other people to take up the slack. Now, is there a downside to the extended family? Well, there most definitely is. For one thing, it can become very chaotic and how much privacy do you really have? Now, when I grew up, we had this family, lived down the street. They were the O'Neills, Irish Catholic, and they had 12 kids. There was 14 people living in a three-bedroom house right down the street from me. And I went to school with one of them. Actually, everybody went to school with one of them because they had one in every single grade. And my wife went to, to school with one. My brothers and sisters all went to school. We all knew them. And I was good friends with, with one of the O'Neills. And I remember asking him one day, I said, What's it like growing up in that house? And he says, oh, it's not so bad. I try to be the last one home at night so I can sleep on the top of the pile. And I'm first one up in the morning, so I get the shoes. (laughs) He had such a great sense of humor about it. I just loved it. And you know, it wasn't like my family was exactly small. There was eight in our household. So it was a big, but we had a big house. But here was the thing. I've actually had some small experience with the extended family. It happened to us every summer. Because we had a family cottage that a bunch of us shared. And everybody goes to the cottage at the same time. You ever figured out how that works? It's called Weekends in July. And everybody would show up. And Grandma were there. And Grandpa were there. And the uncles were there. And the aunts were there. And the cousins were there. And it grew to from 8 to 20 to 25 to 30, sometimes 40 people all staying. And we were sleeping everywhere. We're sleeping on the floor in sleeping bags. We're outside in tents. And you know, as a kid, you don't care. This seems like an adventure. Like, what's better than sleeping with your cousins in a tent? And everybody's there. And I remember thinking about this as an adult. thinking, I wonder who did all the cooking and the cleaning because I know it weren't me (laughs) my mother bawled me out this morning and said who do you think it was (laughs) anyway there was this you know just chaos is what it was but we had so much fun and the interesting part was mealtime because you're all trying to eat together now you might maybe don't know this But I actually come from a family of extroverts. And so so at mealtime, here's what you had to do. If you were going to be heard, you had to shout above the other people. And so we would just start shouting, you have to get louder than the other guy to be heard. And this went on and on. And you're not going to believe this, but I actually was the quiet one in my family. (laughs) And people don't believe that until they meet my family and they go, he's telling the truth. He isn't the loudest one in that family. So anyway, we're we're shouting away and it's just a cacophony of noise. And I remember I had a friend, he'd just been recently married, and he brought his newlywed wife to our place for one of those weekends. Big mistake. And I'll never forget, because he told me this later, at the end of the weekend, she pulled him aside and said, will you do me a favor? And he said, I'll do anything for you. She said, don't ever bring me here again. (laughs) I'm kidding. It it wasn't my friend's wife. It was my wife. (laughs) Again, I'm telling the truth. (laughs) All right. So you have the extended family. And for many, many, many centuries, it worked just fine. But then something happened. It was called the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution changed everything because now the jobs were in the city. And people weren't making their, their their livings and their vocations on the country and on the farm anymore. They had to go to the city. And went to, they went to the city and started working in these factories. They were now distanced. They were now separated from their extended families. So these young men, they were lonely. They started getting married much earlier than they did when they were on the farm. And they started forming what today we call the nuclear family, where these small groups of uh, uh, you know husband and wife and two and a half children. And that is what we think today. We think that is the norm. It actually has only been the norm since the Industrial Revolution. And we also think that it's the ideal. But here's the problem with the nuclear family. It is very fragile and it's actually brittle. Because what happened by the 70s, it actually worked for quite a while, but by the 1970s, it stopped working quite as well. Because what happened is people couldn't sustain it financially. And so you were gonna have to have two incomes. And the women went off to work. Some of them had to. Some of them wanted to, you know, for self-actualization and development. and, And that was fine. But what happened was it really created an instability in the family. Now, all of a sudden, you have these children in these homes where the parents are gone great stretches of the day. And I know growing up in the 60s and 70s, I mean, me and my buddies, we roamed the streets like a pack of dogs. I never knew where my parents were. I was worried about them. You can well imagine that. And so we all got into a lot of trouble. We got into drugs and we got into alcohol and there was teenage girls getting pregnant. The boys were involved in that, by the way. And uh, there was all these things started happening. And so what happened was the uh, nuclear family began to break down. And it's very brittle because there's no buffer. And so what happened was the divorce rate, as you know, skyrocketed to 50% where it still is today. And once the, uh, that family unit started to break down, what do you have left? There's no buffer. There's nowhere to take up slack, And so the family further fragmented. It went from the extended family to the nuclear family. And now it is broken down into even smaller groups. I'm going to throw it up on the screen here for you to see this. And this is no judgment of anything. This is just sort of reality. And I'm putting this up on the screen because probably every one of you are going to see yourself somewhere in this. So you have the extended family and In many parts of the world, they still live like that, uh, particularly uh, in developing nations. And, of course, we have many people, some in this church, and particularly in our community here, where they have emigrated from somewhere, and they're still living in these large family uh, groups with cousins and uncles and grandpas all together, and that's the extended family. So it still exists very much today. Most of us in North American culture are more familiar with the nuclear family, which is what? It is a, a Homer and Marge Simpson husband and wife and two and a half children. And that's that's the model. But as it breaks down, what happens is the fastest growing segment of our population and families is actually single parent families. And so that you have the matriofocal or the petrifocal, which is uh you know, single father or single mother And of course, some of many of you in this room are in that category. And then what we've seen is that sometimes those groups will find each other for blended families. And again, in this church, we have many blended families. And then there's a fifth model that has emerged more recently, and they're calling it the chosen family. And that's where people found themselves. Because in the decentralization of the family, some people ended up in no family at all. And so they have chosen to live in a family relationship somewhere, like Charlie Sheen did in Two and a Half Men. He was the half man, by the way. And uh, and they just chose to live together in various relationships, and we know all about that, and you've seen that, and that's part of our culture. My intention here is not to judge any of you where you may have landed in this, but to merely say this is what the world now looks like. And the bigger more important question and where I'm going to land this message today, and the take-home is what are you going to do about it? And, and who is your clan? Because what you need to do is discover your clan. We can't turn back the clock. I'm not going to suggest you go and look for a Hutterite colony somewhere or an old school Mennonite colony that'll take you in. They probably won't. Maybe. I don't know. But we can't turn back the clock. It is what it is. And what we have to do is figure out what are we going to do. And I think the key in this is we've got to rediscover who our clan is. Because as I said earlier in this message, every single one of you has a clan. And here's what Mother Teresa said, and I love it so much. She said this The problem with the world is we draw the circle of our family too small. So, what does that mean? That means we have to draw the circle of our family bigger. And I'm going to show you this incredible verse. I know you're going to love it. And it's a, our favorite character, Jesus. And let me read you this story, and it's so self explanatory. That it'll speak for itself, obviously. So here it is. It's Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came. So his his biological mother and his biological brothers, obviously. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look... Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So just so you know what's going on, there's a crowd of people around Jesus. He's in this building or in this house. It's just jammed full of people. All these people wanting to be followers of Jesus. And his biological family is on the outside and they can't get in. So they send a message. They said, "We're, we're looking for Jesus. And this is what he answered. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? He looked around in a circle of those who sat about him and said, here are my mother, here are my brothers. Did you catch what he did? He looked at the followers of Christ. He looked at the Christian people, the people who wanted to be believers. And he looked around in a circle and he said, these are my mother, these are my brothers. He drew the circle of his family And you see, we have the distinct advantage when we are part of a church that we are not just part of an institution. We are part of a family. And you have family in this room. I have family in this room. There are people that God has caused us to connect with. People he has brought us from around the world and he has thrust us together in this unique relationship called the family of God. And I look around this room and I see people that I would consider, most of you in fact, that I would consider you my family. I feel loved by you. I feel accepted by you. And I hope you feel the same way for me. Because this is the circle of our family. We have to learn to draw the circle of our family bigger. And who has a better chance to do that than the followers of Christ? Indulge me two more minutes to tell you this fantastic story as a as a take home on this. How many of you ever seen the movie The Blind Side with Sandra Bullock? How many have seen that movie? It's a great movie. It's a great story. Sandra Bullock nailed it. She won an Academy Award. Actually, won Best Actress in every category in every award show. And here's the story. It's it's about a couple, a family living in Memphis, Tennessee. Their names are Sean and and uh, Leanne Tui. And uh, their kids go to the school. They're actually very, very well off. He owned 60 restaurants at the time, and they now own 85. And they're this loving, compassionate, uh, strong Christian family. So they're at a volleyball game one night at the school. And at the end of the game, they see this very large black boy he's a a high school student, he's six foot four, he's something like 300 pounds, and he's going around the bleachers, and he's picking up old hot dogs and french fries, and he's eating off of the bleachers. So they ask their kids about him, and they say, yeah, that's Michael. Michael Ower is his name. That's Michael, and, and he wears the same clothes to school every single day, and they didn't know anything about him. So a few days later, Leanne is driving down the road. It's dark, it's night, it's cold, and she sees this boy walking down the street all by himself. And he's inappropriately dressed. He's wearing those same clothes. He's wearing this T-shirt. And he's shivering. And so she pulls over, this little diminutive blonde woman. She pulls over and she says, do you have somewhere to go? So, so she figures out the story. This, this boy has just lost his father. He's just died. His mother's a drug addict. He actually has nowhere to go. He has no shoes he has nobody feeding him he has nobody taking care of him he's just trying to make a go of this so she says you're coming home with me so they she brings this this black boy home to their home and and he sleeps on the couch for the night and, and and of course the story goes on like that and they just continue to befriend him and continue to invite him over and they invite him over for thanksgiving and he starts to become part of the family and I, I love this picture. They took him to see Santa Claus. I love this picture. The one on the left is, is the real life picture of, of the kids and Santa Claus and, and Michael, this, this giant of a man. And then that's the picture in the movie on the right. And of course, uh, he's really struggling in school. His grade point average is 0.76. And he's got an IQ of 80. And he could play football on the school team, but he's academically ineligible uh, because of his, his grade point. And so Leanne starts taking him on and helping him and tutoring him. And his grade point goes from 0.76 to 2.52. And now he can play for, for the team. And he starts playing for the team. But he's actually not able to really perform. There's something wrong. He lacks motivation. And on one of the tests they gave him, he scored very high in what was called protective instinct. When someone was at, in harm's way, he would protect them. So she knew what to do. And this is the scene from the movie. She's pointing at him and she's saying to him, you need to protect your quarterback because those people over there, they want to hurt him. And when he heard that motivation, he became this incredibly capable offensive lineman just to speed through the story he ends up uh graduating he gets uh recruited to one of the universities actually all the universities wanted of them uh here's the the graduation picture both from the movie and in f- from real life and as he graduated he played of course college football and then as he graduated he got uh drafted to the Baltimore Ravens are you ready for this his first contract was a 5 year contract for 13 point Eight million dollars four years later uh, he helped the Ravens go and win the Super Bowl and you know what I love about this story is that here was this kid just full of potential this Michael Orr full of potential but there was no way it was ever going to come out of him because he didn't have a family that was willing to fight for him or bring him into their family. And this this incredible Tui family went and reached out to this young kid, and they saw the potential, and they poured into this kid, and they loved this kid, and he became an overwhelming success. Because there really are no failures in this world. There's just people that haven't had their families that are willing to stand up and to fight. And our job is to understand that we all have a, cl- a clan, and that we figure out who our clan is, and we do that by simply doing this. Drawing the circle of our family bigger. Let's all stand together. All right. I need you all to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment if you would. I've been gone a long time, so I can preach that long, right? You don't mind. So here's what I've been talking about. I've been talking about the fact that God's got this family. Jesus has this family. And are you a member of that family? And if you're not a member of that family, if you haven't invited Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, he's inviting you today. He is drawing the circle of his family bigger today to include you. And if you have not made that decision to be a follower of Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, not going to single you out, we'll not ask you to say anything publicly. But if you would like that dis- to make that decision to be a follower of Christ and become part of the family of God, I want you to take one moment and just slip up your hand so I can see it. Slip. Thank you for that hand. Thank you. Anybody else in the room want to make that decision today? I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not singling you out. Nobody's seeing you. It's you, me, and Jesus at this moment. All right. Fantastic. Great. All right. You can all put your hands down. Because I said I wouldn't single you anybody out, we're all going to pray together. You ready? Let's all say this together. Lord Jesus... I thank you for the work of the cross. That you died for my sin. You rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And I am now part of the family of God. I am a child of God. And I'm surrounded by my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name. Amen. give Jesus a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.